0: Good morning to all of you. Welcome here. Especially glad for visitors that are here. Um, Darius' parents and two youngest brothers are here with us this morning, so we're delighted to have them worship with us here. I'm going to be doing something a little bit different again this morning, and uh, once again I am taking a detour from 1 Corinthians um, I, we have three chapters remaining there, and I do intend to, to finish out that series at some point, but this morning I want to be spend some time talking about and focusing on leadership in the church, and as we're moving toward an ordination, as Danny has already mentioned uh, earlier this morning, I've been struck with the changes in our congregation since our last ordination, um, or the last time that the bro- that two brothers were ordained into the ministry, I am just curious: how many of you were here in 2010 when were part of this church in 2010 when Ivan and Nate were ordained? Just raise your hands. Okay. Now, those of you, how many of you were not here in 2010 when they were ordained? Let's see your hands. Raise them high. It's about half and half. And that's probably, and that's about what I figured. And so, as I thought about that reality, I realized that each one of us brings certain assumptions and ideas on how church leadership is determined and how we go through this whole process. And there's no one correct way of doing so. And there, but there's certainly a variation of approaches. And so, given the diversity of of backgrounds and experiences prior to coming to this congregation, I want to take some time this morning just to walk through and give some explanation of what you can expect over the next two months. And I'm hoping that the purpose of this message is to bring some clarity um, and hopefully to the process and then just to minimize, um, I guess, surprises and or frustrations that may come along the way. And so. A rather different message this morning, but I believe it's an important one for us to to think about. For my text this morning, I want us to turn to Matthew 16, and this is a very familiar passage of Scripture, but as I have meditated on this, not just this past week, but even in in recent months, what is contained here just, um, I don't know. causes me to wonder and stand in awe of of what we have been given and what we have. And uh, it is Peter's confession uh, about Jesus. It's in verses 13 through 20, and I am going to read that this morning from the English Standard Version, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And notice he's he's asking the disciples. Uh, Peter is the one that responds, but he's asking the disciples, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, and I think that we can assume that he was replying I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Like I say, this is a familiar passage of scripture, and yet I I realize that I have often failed to really grasp some of the significance of what is going on here. So Jesus is talking to his disciples. Certainly the 12, it may have been even some more than that. We don't know exact, the exact number, but 12 is what we would typically think about. These were 12 ordinary men that God, Jesus had singled out and had called and chosen to be that inner circle of his students. And he declares here, um, after the confession that, that Peter makes, declaring that he is uh, the Son of God, Jesus declares that he will build his church and Satan will not prevail against it. And when you just stop and think about that, he was declaring right then and there some of the present reality that we're, we're experiencing here this morning. That throughout time, Satan will not destroy, will not prevail against the church. and He's giving these 12 ordinary, fallible disciples who truly believed that Jesus was the anointed one, God's son, and he's giving them the very keys of the kingdom of heaven. They are entrusted with the responsibility of being stewards of the church. He says, what you bind is bound, what you loose is loosed. But he is giving the disciples, uh, his followers, the keys to the kingdom. They are entrusted as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, official representatives of the king of kings. And the future The entire future of God's kingdom is entrusted to these 12 redeemed sinners along with the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ himself established the church. It was not something that was Paul's idea or the apostles' idea after Jesus left. But it was was Jesus himself that established the church. And now, today, 2,000 years later... The local church continues to carry on the tor- this torch of the kingdom of God through redeemed sinners and the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. Satan has not prevailed against the church, even though he has relentlessly attacked the church. He has attempted to uh, undermine it through deception and heresy over the last 2,000 years. There have certainly been um, attempts by humanity to manipulate and use coercive methods to use the church for their own selfish ambitions and agendas throughout throughout the years. The church has, or portions of the church I should at least say, has been marred uh, by this, and it has distorted the image of Jesus Christ uh, to many people. But in spite of these attacks, in spite of the deception, the heresy, that may may have been experienced, there have been and are many faithful churches that have retained Jesus Christ as the head of the body throughout all of history. Satan has not prevailed, and he will not prevail. Jesus remains king and the head of the church. And as I thought about that, the only reason this congregation exists today is because of what Jesus declared to his disciples before before his death and resurrection. When he said, I will build my church and Satan will not prevail, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We are living out the reality of Matthew 16 here today in Catlett. Jesus builds his church on the foundation of his present-day disciples, making that same confession that Peter made, confessing that he is the promised Messiah, the anointed one, our redeemer, and that we have the privilege of being part of his kingdom. And then when we recognized Jesus for who he is, he entrusts the stewardship of his body, the church, to his disciples, this group, and the Holy Spirit. He gives us the keys of the kingdom. It's an incredible responsibility, but I would say it's even a greater privilege when you stop and think about that. Jesus Christ has entrusted us, even though we're imperfect disciples, to be his body and to represent him here and now. And our greatest expression of love to Jesus is faithful obedience to to the King of Kings. That that is part of what has been going through my mind just in recent weeks as I even think about uh, the church, the ordination, and so forth. But then just bringing this down a little bit more as, as we start thinking about what this means as far as the ordination. We are the body of Christ. And I have mentioned this multiple times, especially since preaching through First Corinthians 12. but Verse 27 there says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We are the body of Christ. It's not that we are like the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. This church the church in which we're members is the very body of Christ. Jesus brought together this specific group of individuals, group of disciples, together in this congregation for a reason. And I don't believe that there is any coincidence to that. There is, it is not a coincidence that we are together now. Several verses from Ephesians 5 um, Verses 29 and 30, For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Members is a a term there that we would, but when you think of the analogy of the body, maybe another way of kind of striking home or making this resonate: we are organs of his body. This is the body of Christ and we are his organs organs. And then uh, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 12 as well, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. And then verse 20, as it is, there are many members, many parts, yet one body. The church is supernatural. It is a living organism divinely designed created for a purpose and it is the body of Christ on earth today kind of putting some of those ideas together the local church is the supernatural living body of Christ of whom the very architect of its members is God himself and he Jesus is the head of this amazing reality the church is so much more, so superior to any other earthly institution or organization that we could even imagine. And that's because it was designed and created by God for his purposes. And we have the privilege of being a part of that very supernatural organism. Partway through Acts, Uh, Through the book of Acts, which we just studied in Sunday school. This records the earliest days of the church that we read about men being called into leadership, and and there were being planted, these churches were being planted by the apostles. And as the number of believers grew and groups of them started meeting and worshiping together, some level of leadership was simply required. initially by the apostles themselves, but then it expanded to include others as we read through Acts. And while it's not specifically indicated in Scripture, at Pentecost we read that there were people there from more than a dozen, upwards of maybe even close to 20 different regions or countries, gathered there. And at the end of Acts 2, it's recorded that more than 3,000 were added to the church that day. Now, they didn't live there, obviously, so as they went back to their homes, gatherings were established, churches were established throughout these areas, and it can certainly be assumed that men from these various areas took the responsibility of at least coordinating these gatherings as they went back home to these 12 to 20 different areas. In Acts 6... The disciples of the church in Jerusalem decided it was time to appoint or ordain seven men to serve tables in order to devote, so that the apostles could devote more of their time to prayer and the ministry of the word. I'll read the first four verses there of Acts 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, and so there again, an indication that the church was growing, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to, of God to serve tables. Therefore, br- brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint them to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, this passage is often referenced in relation to the work of a deacon. And while the word deacon is not actually used in this passage, the root word for deacon is used in the word that is translated serving serve or to serve the tables. And so there we have an example of additional men being needed and, or, uh, and men being appointed to serve. Uh, to the, for the needs of the church. Then in Acts 14 and Acts 20, we see a bit more explicit references to church leaders being appointed or called on, uh, during Paul's missionary journeys. And the one thing that I note in this uh, is the plural aspect, the, the, the plural that is used here uh, as we read this. Verse 23 of Acts 14, It says, and when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord of whom they had believed. And then over in Acts 20, verse 17, it uh, mentions again, this is in Ephesus, now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him." Again, plural, elders, and then jumping down to verse 28 just uh, gives a little bit more instruction there, "...pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers," again plural, "...to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood." And from this and other passages, I think that we, uh, I think it's clear from Scripture that there are two distinct roles, leadership roles, identified in the New Testament. And that is that of elder or overseer or pastor and deacon. Um, But there's there's these two roles. And we see that uh, in several other places as well, and I'll just mention a couple of these. Um, You find the word bishop in the King James translation, but... uh, other times, the same word that's translated bishop in the King James is translated elder or overseer in other places in the New Testament. Uh, Philippians 1 verse 1 is an example of these two offices, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all of the saints of Jesus Christ who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And So, there is an example of the two offices being specified. And then we also get a feel for how these words for these different offices were used interchangeably in some of the uh, epistles. Uh, In 1 Peter 1.1, it uh, it talks about Paul an apostle to those that are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to uh, uh, this group of uh, churches, if you will. And then he continues in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter, he says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you to, for, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And then in uh, Titus 1, verses 5 through 9, again, here he's bringing out some of this, the differences as well as the plurality and uh, the, the two offices, or, uh, or the offices are a bit more... Uh, he doesn't mention the two offices here, but the one office is mentioned here. In the King James, you would see bishop and... Um, and elders used in this same, but I, it's quite obvious you're talking about the same people. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. Plural. If anyone's above reproach, the husband and wife, the children of believers are not and not open to the charge of a debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer or a bishop in King James Version, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy or for gain, but hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught to him so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict her. So, this just kind of establishes that church leaders Leadership is established early on in church history, Uh, it's something that is necessary for churches to, to function the way that God designed them. But also, as we've seen from sermons I've been preaching through 1 Corinthians, that churches, like the people in them, are far from perfect and don't always operate the way that God intended. Um, that includes us, and we need to remain humble and truly submit to Jesus Christ, our head. That includes all of us, because Jesus can best work in and through uh, repentant disciples, disciples that acknowledge and recognize that they aren't perfect, and they may make mistakes, and be willing to acknowledge those mistakes. Just several observations from these passages, which I also provides context and explanation for why we approach church leadership the way that we do. So pastors and deacons were appointed in every church. This indicates these men were already members of that congregation. They were active. They were known by that church family. These were not seminary-educated graduates applying for jobs in churches, that they don't even know the people there. And so that's, that's the one observation that I make. And then the other thing which I've alluded to is the idea of plural ministry teams. When they appoint elders plural in every church, um, that I believe there is much value in working together in a plural ministry. I believe that scripture calls, clearly calls for pastoral oversight of the local church through servant leadership, by a plurality of qualified pastors and deacons. Now I'm going to delve into just a few more uh, just practical or, or uh, aspects of this. The first one is that of being that we're bivocational. Historically, most conservative Anabaptist congregations have adopted the position of by vocational church leadership. And by that, I mean, I think we all know what it means, but just to explain a little bit, pastors and deacons are expected to have a vocation that provides for their financial support along with their church leadership responsibilities. While Paul demonstrated and modeled this approach as a temp maker, we see that in Scripture. He also made clear that there is a responsibility to support church leaders, including financial support. 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And while this congregation does Reimburse for expenses and give some compensation for time off of work for church work. Most of the church work ends up being done outside normal work hours, which means evenings and weekends. With a bivocational approach, it should be quite obvious that any one man will, ha- will be significant limited, significantly limited in how much time he can give to the work of the church. If you're doing that apart from a full time job. And as such, this model requires more men to do the same amount of work, or less work is going to be done. Uh, there's just not really uh, any way to have it both ways. I will say that we have been blessed with adequate funds from the Minister's Sharing Fund to cover expenses and occasional financial gifts from the congregation over the years, and for which we're grateful. Another aspect of this, and we see it alluded to in Acts, is that we're called by the church. As a local body of believers, each member has a voice in identifying and calling the most qualified brothers to leadership roles. And while the qualifications are significant, The bottom line is that any man, and and, uh, Danny alluded to this this morning, any man, since this is focused on men in leadership, but who is a believer should have or should be developing these character qualities. These qualities aren't unique to leaders, but they should be character traits that are evidenced in any believer's life. And if they aren't yet seen in our lives, we should be asking the Holy Spirit to develop these areas in our lives. Now, most of us would probably not volunteer or choose to be a pastor or a deacon. Um, As I consider the great privilege of being an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ in the body, I have to ask myself, and I why the reluctance, even though I, I share, I mean, I know the feeling as well. And then Paul, in writing to 1 Timothy, in Timothy, suggests that there may not be a greater role to which to aspire to. So that's quite a challenge. So, if I were to ask any of you what you aspire to be in your greatest dream, your biggest dream, your deepest desire, would it be to be a church leader? You know, I don't know that it would be. And I'm not sure that we need but Paul, uh, Paul does write in 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, this is a trust saying that is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. And he continues there with the qualifications. I am not saying that every man should want to be a church leader. I am not saying that, but it does seem more men should see this as an opportunity to serve Christ and look for ways to willingly come alongside current leaders and offer help as needed. Um, And as I read this, as I think about this, I believe it is truly biblical to aspire to be the kind of person Jesus could use in church leadership in your local church. That is something we should all aspire to, is that am I the kind of person that Jesus could use if he called me, I would suggest and I would, that it's not biblical to think otherwise and simply neglect these character qualities that are uh, the qualifications given. The call by the church into leadership requires a long-term commitment, it's not the same as being elected Sunday school teacher or a school board member for one to four years. I'm not saying it's a lifelong responsibility, but it is long-term, and I believe it is indefinite um, when we, with a call like this. And it's not unlike membership. Membership, too, requires a commitment for the long haul. Not something we're in for just a specified period, but, but rather a commitment to the body for uh, the long term. It's a commitment that we stick it out even when it gets tough, when there are hurts, disappointments, misunderstandings. It's a commitment to work through these things rather than simply walking away when it gets hard. The use of the lot um, is used in selecting a leader, you know, when it is used, Is largely based on the account in Acts 1. And I want to read several verses from there if you would want to turn there. Um, This is when Matthias was chosen to replace Judas as one of the 12 apostles. Verse 12 of Acts chapter 1 and they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, actually, yeah, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they entered, they went into the upper room and when they were staying Peter and John and James and Andrew names all the disciples there all of the all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers and it continues on from there but then and they determined that they should uh, appoint someone to take the place of Judas and in verse 23 then and they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go on his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So there's an example in the New Testament where a lot was used to choose between two qualified men. I was ordained using the lot when, uh, in 1996. We have not needed to use the lot since then for subsequent ordinations. Um, when Ivan and Nate were ordained uh, to the ministry and then when I was ordained lead pastor, there was not a lot used either time. Some believe, some congregations, that a lot should be required. Um, we maintain that if the voice of the congregation is not sufficiently clear, a lot will be used to choose between qualified brethren. But when the voice of the church is clear, we, certainly, we don't insist on using the lot. And so that is the approach that we take in relation to the lot. Regarding the upcoming ordination, presently we have three pastors with a designated lead, which is myself, uh, and no deacon. We have not had a designated deacon in this congregation for more than 25 years, since before I was ordained. Last fall, we as a congregation unanimously agreed that our local body would be best served with a designated deacon, along with two pastors assisting the lead pastor. This will mean we have a team of four that will be serving this congregation. The ordination is scheduled for Sunday, April 3rd, which is seven weeks from today. And while there's still a lot of details that will need to be ironed out in the coming weeks, I want to give you some basic outline of what we're thinking, and we'll certainly welcome ongoing dialogue about uh, any of this that you may have. This is the first ordination in which I have the primary responsibility in, so it is a learning process for myself as I go along here. Uh, We have several guest speakers scheduled. On March 13th, Clarence Miller, uh, Nicole's dad, uh, is scheduled to be here, and he will be speaking to us about the role of a deacon. Uh, he served as a deacon for many years in their congregation, and so he will be here uh, ministering to us on March 13th. Then uh, the week of the ordination, James Yoder from uh, the Berea congregation in Napanee, Indiana plans to be here to uh, to walk with us through the actual ordination process. We are looking at likely services on Wednesday through Friday evening with James preaching on topics yet to be fully determined but related to church leadership, church and leadership and qualifications and so forth. Then Friday evening, we plan to receive the voice of the church from members on the best qualified uh, candidate for the deacon role. Each member will be given opportunity to to name the brother that they believe is most qualified. The current plan is that we will conduct an interview with candidates whose names are given, or the top candidates, I should say, that are given on Saturday prior to notifying the congregation of who those candidates are, um, just so that there can be interaction with them prior to, um, to letting everyone else know, and then with an ordination scheduled on Sunday. We have also invited Wayne Schrock to be a part of this process when it comes to details and trying to figure, sort some things out and so forth. Um, as far as the The roles, we wanted to make sure that we clearly define the roles because we have not had a designated deacon. How do we determine here what that role is and so forth? For the pastor, we see that there's three primary responsibilities. And this you see, this is lumping a lot of things together from multiple scriptures. But I think there are three primary roles for the pastor. The first is that to lead. Uh, Exercise oversight, set an example ordain leadership. I mean, it's it's those kinds of things. Secondly, preach. Feed the flop, equip believers, teach, so forth. And the third is shepherd, to encourage, exhort, rebuke, reprove. So lead, preach, and shepherd. That's the primary responsibilities of the the pastor. Um, And then along with that, there is a designated lead pastor, which is which we view as the first among equals. It's not a, an elevated position, but just the, the, the lead pastor. The role of the deacon, we see three primary responsibilities as well. First is to spot and serve tangible needs. The second is to protect and promote church unity. The third is to serve and support the ministry of the pastors. And just a little bit of explanation. So they they spot and serve tangible needs. You know, the benevolence fund, financial needs, physical needs, the widows. We have a number of widows among us um, looking after those those physical types of needs. Protecting and promoting church unity is is just to help identify potential areas of disunity and, and help people work together toward unity. And then... Uh, serving and supporting the ministry of the pastors assisting with what is needed for the pastoral team the rest of the pastoral team details of admin work and and so forth there's a lot of things that could be added in there preaching will be considered a secondary responsibility of the deacon uh, occasional preaching but that will not be considered one of their primary responsibilities and so I know that that's somewhat vague in some areas. But at the same time, we believe that specific responsibilities ought to be determined based on giftings and abilities rather than just too rigid um, otherwise. So we have a team of four. Choosing the best deacon could be any of the men in our church, and that could include a current pastor. So while we're not assuming that a current pastor is chosen, we do need to consider that possible scenario. And if, So if one of the current pastors were to become the designated deacon, it would mean that we need to ordain another pastor to fill that role in the near future. The timing and details of how all of that would work, if needed, has not been worked out. We're going to seek counsel from James Yoder and Clarence Miller on getting their input on how to... Think about some of these things. We're simply mentioning some of the, this to you to give you a fuller context as you pray about and think about who should be, um, who might be the next deacon. So, what should you or what should we be doing over the next seven weeks? I think the number one thing any of you can do, all of us can do, is pray. Make this ordination and the future leadership of this church a matter of focused prayer. Um, You know, it will have a significant impact on the future of our congregation as well as on our pastoral team. For some time now, we've been encouraging that one day a month be set aside for fasting and prayer for the church. I invite you to join me in a day of fasting and prayer every Tuesday between now and uh, and the ordination to seek God's will, to pray for wisdom through the voice of the church, to pray for wisdom for the pastors in leading the process, and also for the one who will be called into that role. Certainly, if there are questions or concerns about this process, or if there's things that are confusing or don't make sense, don't hesitate to talk to one of us about it. Uh, we want We want to be able to dialogue about this and and make sure that there's not things that are assumed or um, misunderstood that lead to frustration uh, through this process. So in conclusion, isn't it exciting that we are carrying on the work that Jesus delegated to his 12 disciples more than 2,000 years ago? appointing leaders to carry on the work of the church that's been going on since Pentecost. We have the privilege of following that pattern as a group here within the next several weeks. Without taking it lightly, let's approach this ordination with full confidence that the Holy Spirit and Jesus our head is going to reveal the right person through this group of believers for this church here and now. But let's make it a matter of focused prayer. Jesus said, I will build my church, and let's join him in building this congregation here and now. Let's stand together for closing prayer. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Lord, for this church. Thank you for the declaration back before your death and resurrection that you declared, I will build my church. I just pray that you, you would uh, be honored and glorified through this process as we as a congregation walk this path over the next couple of months. I pray that you would be honored and glorified. I pray that we can be Sensitive to and alert to your spirits leading in our lives. Guide us. And uh, we are excited to be able to be a part of your work. We're trusting that you, um, you have a plan in this and that you, uh, you have already determined who is that right person. I just pray that you would help us to discern your will in all of this. And uh, we want to be faithful to you in this. Thank you for each and every person here in this congregation. Thank you for uh, the privilege of worshiping together here today. We want to honor you and glorify you as we go about our week. May uh, your kingdom come, your will be done. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.